Welcome and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are on listen-only mode until the question and answer session of today's conference. At the time to ask a question, please press star followed by the number one on your phone and mute your phone and record your name unprompted. This call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. You may introduce your speaker for today, Ali Friedman. Please go ahead. Great. Thanks, Juno, and hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Allie Friedman. I'm the Media Specialist here at the World Resources Institute. Um, so today you'll be learning more about WRI's new Aqueduct Water Stress Data and Country Rankings, which will be released next week on Tuesday, August 6th at 12.01 a.m. Eastern, so that's a minute plus midnight, um, or 6.01 a.m. Central European time which means everything you hear on this call is embargoed until that time, aka until next Tuesday, August 6th. If you haven't already seen the embargoed materials we've prepared, which consists of a spreadsheet with the rankings of countries, states, and provinces, we have a PowerPoint deck with some insights and findings, and we just added the press release, you can just email me after the call. I'll send you the link to the Dropbox. Uh, we're also going to add a few more items to that Dropbox, including some graphics, some visuals, and a blog post later this week. So if you haven't looked at that or if you're receiving it today, it's worth checking back for updates. So let's turn to our speakers now. We'll first hear brief remarks from four different speakers, very brief, and then we'll open the lines for your questions. So we'll be hearing from, this is in order, Betsy Otto, who's our Global Director of the Water Program here at WRI. Then we'll hear from Rutger Hofse, who's an associate with Aqueduct at WRI. Next is Shashi Shikhar, who's the former Secretary of India's Ministry of Water Resources, and he's now a senior fellow with WRI India. And then we'll hear from Shannon Quinn, who's the Global Water Stewardship Leader at Procter & Gamble. So with that, I'll turn it over to Betsy, who can kick us off. Thanks very much, Allie. And let me just join you in thanking everybody for uh, dialing in today. Um, it's a very exciting time for us here at WRI as we launch the newest version of Aqueduct today, uh, which includes our Water Risk Atlas and the Country Rankings Tool. And this comes after five years of research and development, so we're really excited to bring this out. So what does our new data show? Well, what we see is that 17 countries face extremely high water stress, which is a measure of competition over water resources. These countries are home to a quarter of the world's population. And we know that water matters for businesses, for food security, for energy production, cities and families. And we're currently facing a global water crisis. Our populations and economies are growing and demanding more water. But our supply is threatened by climate change, by water waste and by pollution. Water stress, which occurs when demands rival annual supply, is a manifestation of those issues. And it can exacerbate conflict, constrain financial growth, or even grind business to its standstill. It can threaten crops. It can cause or make famines worse. Uh, and it can also cause day zeros, the term that gained traction last year in Cape Town, describing the frightening moment at which taps in a city run dry. And that's been happening in Chennai in India. And we're likely to see more of these kinds of day zeros in the future with major uh, growing cities and water stress. At the same time, what we learn with our new data in Aqueduct is that beneath our feet there's a groundwater crisis that we're not even seeing. Our underground savings account of water is being rapidly overdrawn. So let me just note, and this is in the Dropbox materials that Allie's referenced, there are many reds signifying high and extremely high water stress places around the world in Aqueduct. 
But as I look at these, I want to just note uh, three areas. The first is the Middle East and North Africa, perhaps unsurprisingly. The second, Mexico, and the third is India. Starting with the Middle East and North Africa, 12 out of the 17 countries in this region face extremely high water stress. Excuse me, 12 out of the 17 countries that I've mentioned are in this region, and they face extremely high water stress. We know that uh, water stress can be a driver or an exacerbator of conflict and migration pressure as well. In Mexico, the country also faces high water stress, and that's only likely to worsen in coming years with population and economic growth, and we know that groundwater is being overextracted to the extent that the capital city, Mexico City, is quite literally sinking. You'll hear more about India's water challenges and opportunities from Shashi Shekhar uh, in, a, in a bit. But let me just sort of wrap my comments by saying that the picture is alarming in many places around the globe. But it's very important to note that water stress is not destiny, even for many of the hotspots that Aqueduct identifies, with better information, better planning and water management, and solutions that we know work, such as more efficient irrigation, fixing leaks and recycling wastewater, and protecting source watersheds. All of those approaches can help us change the trajectory that we're on. What we can't afford to do any longer is pretend that the situation will just resolve itself or throw up our hands and say that there's nothing we can do, that we can do to address this global water crisis. It's our hope that the new version of Aqueduct can help to sound the alarm and can help decision makers better understand the challenges and the impacts they face and spur action. With that, Ellie, I'll turn it back to you. Great. Thanks, Betsy. And now I'll turn to Rucker, who has led much of the data analysis for Aqueduct, and he'll walk us through some highlights from this year's data and rankings and the updated tool. Sure. Thank you, Ellie, and thank you, Betsy. Uh, you've just heard Betsy describe the global water crisis we're facing and some of Aqueduct's key findings. I'll dive into a bit more about what Aqueduct is, why we created and updated it, and who uses it. What isn't measured isn't managed. This is especially true when it comes to water resources. Through Aqueduct's data, we found that humankind uses more than double the water today than it did in the 1960s. Improper management coupled with these growing water demands has led us into our current crisis. Aqueduct's tool aimed to solve this issue by making the best and most recent water data accessible to a wide audience. We believe that with access to your information about what and where risks are occurring, decision makers such as companies and governments will be able to manage water better. The Aqueduct Water Risk Atlas are most used tools paints a full picture of water risks, including quantity, quality, and regulatory and reputational risks. The aqueduct update includes a new model featuring 144 times higher spatial resolution data, new indicators, including groundwater table decline and coastal flood risk, and we added monthly data for selected indicators. For example, you can now see water stress and how it varies in the U.S. between an average April, which is usually quite rainy, and July, which is hotter and drier. Betsy has shared a bit about our country rankings, and in addition to ranking the 189 countries by water stress, we also rank their states and provinces. You can now compare Tehran to Texas to Tasmania. <coughs> our state and province rankings unveil that even countries with low average water stress may have significant hotspots. New Mexico, for instance, faces extremely high water stress on par with the United Arab Emirates. We hope that national decision makers will use state and province rankings to investigate 
and prioritize the regions within their country that may be the most vulnerable to water risk. Great, thanks Rucker. Next we'll hear from Shashi Shikhar. Again, he's the former Secretary of India's Ministry of Water Resources and he's now a senior fellow with WRI India. Thank you, Ali. Uh, I was Secretary of Ministry of Water Resources, Government of India, during one of our worst droughts in 2016. I and many people in India are quite familiar with the challenges that water stress can cause. Niti Aayog, India's National Planning Agency, issued a report in June 2019 that said plainly, India is suffering from worst water crisis in its history and millions of lives and livelihoods are under threat. Currently, 600 million Indians face high to extreme water stress and about 200,000 people die every year due to inadequate access to safe water. The report noted that many different sized cities in India, including major towns like Delhi, Bangalore, etc., could face water crisis similar to Chennai's, which made headlines nationally as well as internationally as its four main reservoirs dried up and an unthinkable day zero happened during the current year. India today faces water stress of varying degree in different regions in India. <clears throat> Poor monsoon rains over the past two years have contributed to the current water stress in India. But so has the cumulative effect of other activities, including deforestation and removal of natural vegetation that replenishes groundwater and slowly releases flows to rivers. Excessive diversion of river water for irrigation purposes. You know, actually it is the, irrigation, the flowing river uh, during the flood time, during the monsoon time, recharges the groundwater. So diversion of uh, river water for irrigation purpose dries up river and in the process dries up uh, aquifers. Siltation and building up top of ponds, lakes, wetlands, floodplains, high abstraction of groundwater that has caused its rapid depletion, etc. Unless the trend is reversed through a coordinated and integrated action with participation of people and civil societies and experts are involved, the water crisis may continue and may further worsen. The situation fortunately yet is not out of control and can be reversed. It will require India to restore catchment forest, preserve floodplains, wetlands, marshlands that allow water to infiltrate into aquifers, restore, preserve and conserve all lakes, tanks, ponds and the drainage channels to ensure recharge of groundwater and India will have to seek solution in traditional wisdom of water management instead of temporary solutions like costly and energy-intensive inter-basin water transfer, ocean polluting desalination, etc. Government of India is now fully alive to water crisis and have initiated a series of coordinated measures at village and city level to arrest the problem and reverse the same. The water crisis in India 
water crisis in water crisis india is facing must unite us not divide us we can all work together to protect this resource and make sure it's available to all of us including the most vulnerable population thank you i turn over to ali thanks shashi so our last speaker before the q and a will be shannon quinn who leads global water stewardship at png shannon go ahead Hi, everyone. Thanks, Ali. P&G is committed to protecting water for people and nature in priority basins. And as we do that, we will also continue to reduce water use at facilities, employ circular sources at our sites, and inspire products that help people consume responsibly. We recognize that no single company can accomplish this alone and are building partnerships that enable people, the planet, and our business to thrive. In 2012, P&G became a member of the Aqueduct Alliance, helping to fund and guide the development of the Aqueduct Water Risk Atlas. We worked very closely alongside experts at WRI to use the Aqueduct tool to assess water risks across our value chain. And through doing this, we identified 18 basins across our portfolio where we will focus our efforts as we work to protect water for people and nature. Aqueduct 3.0 will allow P&G to ensure it has the most up-to-date data as we build our understanding of the key shared water challenges in each of our priority basins. We also hope it enables other organizations to do the same so that we can move towards actions in partnership that will make a positive difference in these basins experiencing high water stress. Great. Thanks so much, Shannon, and thanks to all of our speakers. We'll now turn to the Q&A Session. Um, before we get started, I wanted to let folks know that Paul Reed, who's the Director of Aqueduct and Corporate Water Stewardship at WRI, is also here with us, and he can take your questions as well. So, Juno, could you let uh, participants know how they can submit a question? Absolutely. For the participants over the phone, if you want to ask a question, you may press star followed by the number one on your phone and mute your phone and please record your name clearly when prompted. Your name will be required to introduce your question. To cancel your request, you may press star followed by the number two. Once again, for questions, that is star one and please record your name when prompted. To cancel it, that's star followed by the number two. One moment, please, for our incoming questions. Great, thanks. So again, push star one if you'd like to ask a question while folks are submitting questions. Just a reminder that everything on the call today is embargoed. I can send you a recording of this call afterwards. I can also send the embargoed materials in our press kit Dropbox. Again, you can just email me to see that. My email is ally, A-L-L-Y, dot Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, at W-R-I dot org. And yep. Just another reminder, embargo time, August 6th at 12.01 a.m. Eastern, 6.01 a.m. CEST. Uh, Juno, do we have any questions? Yes, we do have two questions in queue. One moment, please, as I get the name. Thank you so much for waiting. And our first question comes from Emily Holden. Emily, your line is now open. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having the call. Uh, I was hoping that you could just sort of uh, lay out the difference in what you're talking about between water stress and how it overlays with the drought and climate risks and future risks. So basically the difference in what you're talking about between supply and demand and the other threats to clean drinking water availability and other water availability. 
Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Emily. I'll start with Paul, and if anyone wants to chime in, they can go ahead after that. Great. So I'll kick it off, and uh, Rucker, please feel free to chime in. Uh, so, Emily, um, we, we make the distinction uh, between different types uh, of water risk because, as you alluded to in your question, there, there are different uh, threats uh, posed by water, right? Some threats stem from, you know, n not enough water, others from too much water, others from water that's unfit for, for consumption. And um, of the different risks or threats that we measure, water stress is a measure of, of competition for water. So we measure um, how much demand uh, there is by, by industry, by, by agriculture, by domestic water users relative to how much is available to them. Right, so it's a, it's a uh, what's called a traditional kind of measure of supply demand. Other indicators that are included in the tool measure social dimensions related to water, such as access to water uh, for drinking, uh, access to sanitation and hygiene. Um, and I think you, you were alluding to in your question, how does this relate to future uh, risk, a drought and drought? Right. Um, so, so the difference between stress and drought is that uh, stress measures supply demand in terms of baseline conditions, and drought looks at anomalies in supply, right? So it looks at how the average supply of water for any given geography uh, might change during a certain time period. So you could think of it as kind of like an acute risk versus a chronic risk, which is what baseline water stress measures. Perfect. Thanks, Paul. Rucker, anything you wanted to add to that? I think, Paul, you captured it really well. Um, did that answer the question, Emily? Um, yeah, well, also, I was I was wondering um, what this might tell us about climate risk in terms of how this could get worse and what how supply and demand looks for communities around the U.S. in particular. Sure. Thanks, Emily. I'll turn it over to Betsy to respond to that. Thanks, Emily. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Um, and one thing I want to say, too, about the relationship between water stress and drought is that if you're in an area of high or extremely high water stress where a lot of available water is already being withdrawn, if you then hit a drought, a, you know, a period of anomaly, as, as uh, Paul has described, you're really in trouble because you're already using most of what you have. But if you have less, then obviously the various uh, sectors that need that water are not going to have water or taps are going to run dry. With respect to climate change, we know that in many places what we're going to be seeing is more erratic, more unpredictable uh, hydrology precipitation, either too much or too little, often in the same places. Places in Brazil, for example, experienced really serious droughts a couple of years ago and then very shortly after experienced extreme flooding. We're going to be seeing more and more, in this, more of this in a lot of places. It's difficult to accurately predict exactly what will happen with climate change. We do know that the mid-latitudes around the globe, uh, sort of the Mediterranean areas, the, the Northeast and Middle East, as we described, are likely to be receiving less rainfall. All the climate models tend to point to that, and so we are likely to see climate change having an impact on supply. On the demand side, of course, as well, crops will draw more water up during dry periods. People will use more electricity to run their air conditioners. Electricity to generate requires water for cooling or to run hydropower dams. So there's a kind of a, you know, a vicious cycle associated with that as well. Great. Thank you, Great. Operator, I mean, also, Juno, do we have another question? Yes, we do have. A, our second question comes from Sumini Sengupta. Your line is now open, Sumini.
I'm sorry, uh, Domini just uh, withdrew her question. And our next um, question comes from Esther Wilden. Your line is now open, Esther. Um, I have a few questions. One, um, can you say that the data is, is through 2014, and can you explain maybe if that's true, why it's not more recent, or when you expect to have more av recent data available? Um, second, can you talk a little bit more about the groundwater crisis that you mentioned? Um, and third, can you talk about specifically how energy resources are impacted by um, water stress? And if you can get to it, and um, or maybe circle back to it, can you talk about how flooding fits into this? Because since you're looking at sort of withdrawals versus supply, um, trying to understand how flooding kind of fits into this stress, if at all, in your in your formula. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Esther. So that was sort of a four-part question. We'll start with Rucker. I think he can probably take the first, at least the first couple parts of that, and we'll see if others want to chime in. So, Rucker, you want to start? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for this for this question. Uh, our objective is to get the best and most recent data on our tool. Uh, at the same time, we try to estimate a baseline, which is different than the current state of, of water stress. A baseline takes into account the full historic database or a full historic data series of various climate-related metrics, such as precipitation, rainfall, temperature, wind speed, etc. Um, we work with the University of Utrecht to run a hydrological model using like battle-tested climate data. In our case, the historic records, they go from 1960 until 2014. However, you can also read in our technical uh, paper uh, that we apply a couple of statistical steps or algorithms to derive a baseline score from those historic, um, from those historic time series. So, um, it is still a very recent, um, recent water stress score, but we try to eliminate the, the, the big variation that can occur or that you can introduce when you look at individual years in climate, climatic records. Great. Thanks, Rucker. Uh, Paul, do you want to chime in here on this question? Um, I think the 2014 question, Rutger covered it. No, why don't you talk about it? Yeah. Yep. So um, the question was around the, the groundwater crisis and if we can elaborate further on that. Um, so I, I guess there, there are a few things to, to highlight. Um, one is what Betsy already alluded to earlier, right, is that, that we, have, we have a very high reliance on groundwater supplies to meet uh, both domestic demands as well as agricultural demands. Uh, a number of the bread baskets of the world um, rely on irrigated agriculture that's pumped from uh, oftentimes very deep um, aquifers. So we have a very high dependency on groundwater to meet our demands. Um, secondly, it's important to note that unfortunately, um, it is extremely hard uh, to quantify the availability of groundwater and, and measure it, right? So we have a poor understanding of uh, how much is available, and it's, it's costly and difficult to determine what sustainable yields of groundwater are oftentimes, right? So um, we have a situation with a very high dependency on the resource and a limited understanding of its availability and how to manage it. Um, and then um, 
Perhaps lastly, um, uh, I could add to that is that uh, be because we can't see it and we can't measure it, it's often out of sight, right? So what we have is, is, is because of that weak governance structures managing the resource, right? So we have now a situation where we've relied on it for a long time, we don't understand it, and because we don't understand it and don't see it, we manage it very poorly. Those three things brought together make it uh, uh, something of, of heightened concern as we move forward with increasing demands. Anything I mean, anyone wanted to add? I can maybe yeah, chime can in. I add on one one. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Rutger, you want to add to the groundwater? Please, Rutger. Uh, yes, uh, I just wanted to mention that uh, we're updated the underlying hydrological model, and now surface water and groundwater are fully integrated and connected. So the, the model really captures both surface water and, and groundwater. That's new. Great. Thanks, Rucker. And then, Betsy, I think maybe you could tackle the last part of that question, which was around energy. Yes, and I think you also mentioned um, uh, flooding. Maybe I'll start with the last on flooding. We, what's great about Aqueduct 3.0 is that we've been able to add more complete uh, metrics around uh, flood risk. In the past, we've had riverine flood risk, but we're now adding coastal flood risk as well. Uh, and we'll be bringing out this fall a tool that updates our global flood analyzer. It will be called Aqueduct Floods. So look for that, which actually translates all of that sea level rise, storm surge, riverine flooding uh, into impact, uh, both economic and impact on people, uh, and, and also um, uh, urban infrastructure. So it is a big, big issue, obviously. That's a big part of climate change, Esther. I'm glad you raised that question. You also mentioned energy. I think this is not getting the attention that it should. We know from the International Energy Agency that water withdrawals and water consumption by the energy industry is going to increase significantly in the future. We certainly know that's also going to be true as more and more areas have to move, for example, to desalination. In fact, the expectation is that the energy embedded in water uh, will double because of that fact. We're going to have to be pumping water from farther away or deeper underground or desalinating it, which is very energy intensive. But back to just energy production, we did an analysis a year ago in uh, India, which was quite stark, which showed that 70% of the thermoelectric power plants in India are already in areas of extremely high water stress, meaning they're very subject to drought and not being able to operate fully. And in fact, we found that about 20% of the new energy production brought online in India was in fact being undercut by drought and water scarcity to the tune of, I think it was 16 terawatts of energy lost in 2016. That's enough energy to run the entire country of Sri Lanka for a year. So this is a very significant factor. We're starting to look at this for other countries around the world. I think it's not getting the attention that it should. Great. Thanks, Betsy. And just a reminder, folks still on the line, we have a little more time. We can take a few more questions. And uh, Juno, can you remind folks on the line how they can do that? Absolutely. For questions, again, you may press star 1 on your phone. And please record your name when prompted to cancel that star followed by the number 2. One moment, please, for our incoming questions. Great. Thanks so much. So we'll just give it another few minutes to see if anyone else has any questions. And just a reminder, um, if you would like to see the embargoed materials, if you'd like a recording of this call in case you want to capture a quote or felt like you missed anything important, you can always send me an email after this call. Do you know, do we have any other questions? Excuse me, speakers. 
And we have one question in queue. And it comes from Sumini Sengupta. Sumini, your line is now open. Hey, everybody. Um, the call dropped for a second, so um, I may have missed this. But back to the drought question, you know, often when there is a water crisis in a particular place, people will say, well, there was a drought last year and the year before, and so we're facing a water crisis. When the rains come, it'll all be okay. In your global survey, do you think that drought is the main reason, or is it just one of many reasons? And my second question is, are you particularly worried about cities since they are where the majority of um, humanity now lives? Okay. Thanks, Samini. Let's start with Betsy. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Sure, drought makes the, the situation worse, but usually the underlying indicators have been flashing red for a while and we just haven't been paying attention. Drought then makes that very acute. It's sort of the chronic versus acute challenge that Paul was talking about. If you have a chronic disease, you still have a really serious problem, even if you don't have an acute crisis that takes you to the emergency room. We have to be addressing that. So, you know, in places like Sao Paulo or Rio, they still have a really big underlying water problem or challenge. In California, they're not assuming that now that their worst drought in a thousand years is past, and they just had a very high record snowfall year, that they don't still have a challenge. They're still undertaking measures to long-term manage water more effectively, and we have to do that in every place. And yes, cities really experience this very dramatically, because when people assume that they can turn on the tap and, and get water, to manage their household needs, their daily human needs, and they can't any longer. Or as they were talking about in Cape Town last year, people queuing up at 200 distribution sites. You can imagine the chaos. You can imagine the worry. Uh, this, in fact, is happening in a lot of places in India and China. And Chennai. I mean, Shashi can speak to that uh, as well. So those are that's what's at risk here with respect to drought. We can't just assume, oh, once the drought's over, we don't have a problem anymore. Wonderful. Thanks, Betsy. And Shashi, was there anything you wanted to add to this question? Well, India has a slightly difficult uh, and dif different problem. You know, we receive rainfall about down 30, 35 downpours in a year, spread over in a period of about 90 days. Now, this is the 90% of the total water requirement comes from this source, 90 to 95%. This water is available for 90 days, and the need has to be catered for about 365 days. So India, the traditional wisdom, allowed a lot of water to go into the subsoil system that is as groundwater, and people used to understand how much water has gone into the subsoil system and would draw water, would grow crops in accordance with the climate condition according to the agroclimatic uh, requirement. Unfortunately, over the last 40 years, because of, uh, uh, in, in order to achieve uh, food security, we, you know, we excessively drew water from the ground, uh, from the groundwater, and we have started growing uh, crops like paddy, which requires several thousand times more water than uh, uh, the traditional coarse grain crops like uh, uh, no, the, uh, like millets and all. In the process today, in most of the places, northern part of the country, Punjab, Haryana, western part of the Uttar Pradesh, then Maharashtra, Gujarat, Karnataka, Tamil Nadu, these places, the groundwater table has 
is is very badly depleted unless we change over to the cropping pattern move over to a less water demanding crop the crisis may not abate so the now the government of india has uh, is attempting a two pronged attack one is uh, to try water conservation or water harvesting at every village at every village level and bring back the traditional wisdom in that a b uh, we have initiated a program called national aquifer mapping where we are mapping each and every aquifer to understand what is the size of the aquifer where it is receiving water from what is the uh, where is the uh, water recharge uh, locations all and also the uh, rate of uh, uh, water recharge so and that information we are trying to seamlessly inform the uh, the farmers so that they can take an informed decision about crop crop but it is not one year job it will take almost a generation of efforts third is uh, the government of india is now giving incentive to the farmers to move away from paddy sugarcane which are extremely water intensive to low water intensive crop like uh, maize uh, coarse grains millets etc so no a host of uh, actions uh, have been initiated so actually it is not drought but uh, the way we are managing our water resources both surface as well as ground water that is causing the current water stress and uh, now unless uh, we change the cropping pattern and for that the people will have to change their eating habit the dietary habit blend more and more of uh, uh, coarse grains millets etc to 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 ensure that the farmers move away from uh, high water intensive crops i think our challenge is slightly different Great. Thanks so much, Ashi. I'm going to let Paul say one thing briefly to wrap this up, and then we'll move on to the next question. I just wanted to add, uh, uh, Samini, to your question. I think when, when thinking about drought and the threat it poses, it's important to consider that the drought itself is, is uh, a hazard, uh, definitely. But I think it's equally important to consider uh, the exposure to that hazard and the vulnerability of those elements exposed. So if we really want to understand the risk a drought poses, we have to look at those three elements in combination to determine the threat it poses. Great. Thanks. And uh, Juno, do we have the next question? Yes, we do have our next question. It comes from Kim Harrisburg. Kim, your line is now open. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you very much. And I, I also had to step up briefly, so apologies if this has been asked already. But I just wanted to find out uh, if you could elaborate a bit more on the methodology used in the data collection uh, for, for these rankings, please. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Kim. I will turn to Rucker, who can definitely answer that. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you, Kim, for your question. So for the rankings, we uh, use baseline water stress, drought risk, and riverine flood risk. Uh, for baseline water stress, we model baseline water stress using a global hydrological model, which has a terrible name, not made for journalists. It's called PCR <laughs> WB2, uh, and we use a cli like climatic forcing data, uh, which contains data on precipitation, wind speeds, temperatures, and we augment that with um, 
a lot of extra data, for example, soil, soil types, land use, where, where, where people live, uh, like nighttime lights. It's, uh, it's a long list of um, like a lot of data sets. In our technical notes, you can find the full list of data sets that are being used to uh, come to uh, baseline water stress. For drought risk, we use uh, climate, like climate models as well. Uh, but then we, like as Paul alluded to as well, uh, we, we also have exposure and vulnerability layers, and we base our drought risk indicator off the work of uh, the Joint Research Committee, which is the EU uh, research organization. Um, I'm happy to chat offline about uh, the specific resources, but they are all listed in the technical notes. Okay, great. Thanks. And just a note that we will add that technical note to the embargo Dropbox, which we can send you as well. And you can see the whole thing. Anyone else? Paul, did you want to add to that question at all? I, well, I, I wanted to mention something specific to, to the rankings, um, uh, is that all of the data that Rucker mentioned is calculated at a, at a, at a fairly granular hydrological unit. Um, which is appropriate for calculating anything related to, to water resources. Um, however, what, what we do um, to bring that granular hydrological data up to a country or a state or province level is we aggregate it by weighing those values based on where water use is actually taking place within the country or within the state and province. So when you look at, a at the country rankings or at the state and province rankings, you're actually looking at a weighted average of that risk factor based on where, where people live, based on where industry is, and, and based on where agriculture is. And I, I think that that's really important to highlight um, because it really takes, you know, takes uh, uh, into account where the water use is and gives you a good reflection at a national or state level um, of exposure to those issues. Great. Juno, any other questions on the line? There are no questions in queue at this time, speakers. Once again, as a reminder for questions, that's star one, and please record your name to retract. That's press uh, star two. Great. Thanks so much. I think uh, if we don't see any other questions, we'll conclude today's call. I just, before we end, want to clarify that the rankings we've sent press, we have in the embargoed Dropbox are just water stress rankings. Just to clarify, they're not other indicators. There are rankings for countries, states, and provinces for baseline water stress. Um, Allie, excuse looks me. Looks like we might have one more question. Yes, we do have one more question. One moment, please, as I get the name real quick. Thank you so much for waiting, speakers. And our next question comes from Vidi Doshi of The Guardian. Your line is now open, Vidi. Hi, yeah. Um, sorry, I joined late, so you might have answered this already, but I wanted to ask, um, when will it be possible to get the data just because we need to pass it on to graphics teams, um, et cetera, if, if we do do something with it? Sure. We can send it to you today. Um, as I mentioned, the data is embargoed for August 6th, but we're happy to share a preview with you, and we can share anything you need. Additionally, if you don't find what you need in the materials we sent, let us know and we can talk to you about it. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Sure. So I'll follow up with you after the call. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. And we show no further questions at this time. Great. Thanks, Juno, and thanks, everyone, for joining. That concludes today's call. And that concludes today's conference. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.